Daniqua and Lamango rejoined the others in the fallout shelter. Linda Brickner and young Wesley had retired to the sleeping area. The rest were discussing their situation in the lounge. Yeah, welcome back, said Forbin, his nicotine-sharpened eyes scrutinized. The mayor was injured, but why were you taken away? Had questions about my dad? Family, said Forbin, looking at the low battery indicator on his vape. That's how they always get you. He said it, giving the impression he ended a lot of his sentences that way. Perhaps it was a catchphrase. Hoping to head off any additional questions directed at her, she turned to Rando and said, Y'all figure out anything about that website? In the last hour, we've established a timeline for its takeover. Rando gestured toward Mrs. Lau. Lau continued, Monday morning memo hit my desk. Italbao 4% decrease in Brock processing rate at Chainbank. Text rook at it. Not able to find reason. Network just rest productive. Same node power online. Processing rivers gradually drop to 50% by crows of business Thursday. Brickner filled in the blanks. If this is an AI, the missing processing power chain bank might have been the initial distribution of its acyclic data. A sort of bootstrapping of its neural net. Its mind waking up. It used existing hashing hardware to learn how to inject itself into other systems. Other architectures. Compromising more and more compute power. Eventually taking control of critical systems. Beside Harry, Earl finished scribbling on a pad of paper, then added, Hey, you guys, the satellite wouldn't have enough fuel to alter its altitude or speed significantly. So, it should still be within a narrow band. It can be located and shot down. But if we can figure that out, then our government hosts already know that. There must be a reason why they haven't deorbited it already. Rando stepped forward. It's possible that the AI does not actually have the ability to launch. The threat may be a cover for something else. The group of strangers was making a stellar team effort. Cover for what? prompted Daniqua. Could be anything, but I bet it about money, said Lau. Why would an AI care about money? asked Rando. A dissenter, Professor Markov, waved his hand dismissively. It's a pretty big assumption that we're dealing with an AI. It's simply not possible. Brickner stood up, stretched, and stroked his beard. Cracking the knuckles on his right hand, he countered, In the early days of evolved circuits, I think in the 1990s, but certainly before 3D finfield effect ICs, an experimental genetic algorithm was developed to perform a simple task of processing audio. The algorithm was fed a signal and given 100 transistors to accomplish the task. After a thousand generations, the algorithm eventually found an optimal solution, involving several loopback paths and less than five active transistors. This solution was nearly ten times more efficient than the best human-designed circuit. This is a fairly well-known anecdote. What's your point? asked Forbin. That computers can find solutions that humans can't? Well, yes and no. The baffling part was the algorithm would not work on any other chip, not even chips of the same model. The project required the presence of not just the active transistors, but also the unpowered transistors. I remember this story, said Earl. The algorithm developed a solution using not just the logic of the physical layout of the board, but the exact atomic structure of that unique hardware. I can't recall if it was highly precise magnetic flux or some quantum effect. The result was apparently unnecessary components could not be subtracted. 
inert elements at a zero state within the system ended up being of critical importance to its operation. Markov criticized, I'm not sure where you gentlemen are going with the story. Sussex circuits and livable hardware are not new. Rando offered, Well, what is new is the vast amount of compute power we have available. Is it not possible an algorithm did something similar, but instead of a two-dimensional grid of transistors, it acted on the level of the entire internet? Daniqua was mired in their baffle gab. These nerds were deep in it. She needed to get them back up a few layers of abstraction. She needed a prompt to make it obvious she wasn't following. So y'all are saying it's like a computer virus? she asked. Forbin politely shook his head, yes and no. Maybe it started like a virus, but that virus learned about new hardware, evolved solutions for utilizing that hardware, which in turn allowed it to continue embracing other systems and extending itself. That progression would fit the timeline for emergence. Spreading geometrically, parasitizing the internet, first at points, then throughout, sort of like a digital fungus. Earl relayed, adding, Actual fungal mycelial networks are not what we would call intelligent, and yet their structures end up looking a lot like neural networks. Forbin's eyes widened. Assuming that this is not just intelligent, but sentient, maybe our timeline is too short. Maybe the reason we have such a massive amount of compute power at all is because it needed it and incentivized us to create it. Mrs. Lau jumped in. Incentive. Cash. Best way to get people to do things. She crossed her arms. That could be reason for AI to need money. Daniqua understood that point well enough. Her own monetary incentive to accept her role cracked like a whip at the back of her mind. Ahem, Professor Markov coughed. Smart digital fungus wants money. My God. Now that's one hell of a hypothesis. His punchy tone more than conveyed how unconvinced he was by this line of reasoning. How might we falsify that? Brickner sat down, and Forbin took center, facing the group in the lounge. He took a pull from his vape, emitting a plume. He said, One way to find out would be to try to shoot down the satellite. He exhaled his vapor completely, took a fresh breath, then continued. And I suppose another is to let the clock tick down and see if it actually nukes those cities. The idea was preposterous. He was proposing allowing the obliteration of four major world cities without knowing what purpose the destruction would serve. Daniqua was too distracted being outraged by Forbin's comment to remember to grok reactions from the group. A momentary lapse of focus. A missed opportunity. Earl countered. Even if failure is assured, it would be silly not to try to resist. Brickner disagreed. Forbin might have a point. Assuming it's an AGI, it's mind spread across the internet. The disruption in network routing after a global nuclear disaster would significantly hinder its ability to communicate with itself. If it is to be vulnerable, it would be in the chaos immediately after the bombs fall. His suggestion redeemed. Forbin almost smiled. Exactly. We would know it wasn't bluffing, and perhaps have our only opportunity to make a counter-strike. Aim artillery at critical portions of our power grid and communications equipment. Pull every plug we can. Oh, come on. Professor Markov laughed. Surely you're not serious. Let's say the bombs fall, and then we destroy our own infrastructure. That would certainly solve the problem of finding out who is behind this. They will immediately have a massive tactical advantage over every nation that opted to cut off their own legs 
and make themselves ripe for pillage. Forbin and Brickner were silenced. Rando agreed. Yeah, doesn't seem like a desirable outcome. It's certainly possible that particular scenario has been planned for, or is itself actually a goal of those behind Marduk. Professor Markov continued to scoff, while Rando, Forbin, Kine, and Brickner all began talking over each other. Mrs. Lau tried to speak up, but couldn't get a word in. She rolled her eyes at the men. Fed up with being talked over, she took a seat on the couch on the other side of the lounge. The discussion was getting heated and seemed to be based on very little, pinging back and forth between doubting Marduk was an AI and how best to respond if it were. They were stuck in a loop. Two point eight zero one one six Sunday. Daniqua waited for a lull in the discussion, then prompted them back to her track. As someone who's not in IT, I ain't got no idea how to respond to this cyber attack or whether it's an AI. We ought to focus on who could be responsible, is what I think. Like, who stands to benefit from the destruction of New York City, London, Jerusalem, and Hong Kong? Glad to change the topic, Professor Markov answered, Putting aside all your political ends that could be achieved in the wake of such a disaster, any number of groups could potentially benefit simply by claiming responsibility. What do those cities have in common, aside from their pending destruction? asked Bruckner. Rando spoke without thought, hiccuping. Uh, they are all iconic? Earl encyclopedically recited, Three are cities they have ports, populations approaching ten million, but one is landlocked and scarcely has one million residents. Jerusalem stands out. So, then why Jerusalem? asked Daniqua. Name another city that gets as much attention, said Forbin. Perhaps that's the key factor for the targets, to gain the most attention. Brickner posited, Jerusalem is an anomaly. Its inclusion suggests something. Perhaps the targeting is not tactical. It's ideological. Breaking his silence, Lamango quipped, Ideology is tactical. Ignoring Lamango's pith of wisdom, Brickner continued his line of thought. If we take it at its word, Marduk is threatening to destroy because that's one of the only things that will make people take its power seriously. It doesn't so much as threaten, said Forbin, as it has simply declared. Other than that, I don't see any faults with what you're saying. Its name might be another clue. Is M-A-R-D-U-K an acronym for something? asked Daniqua. Marduk, wasn't that like a Sumerian Jesus? asked Lamango. Babylonian, Professor Markov answered, adding, Mr. Lamango, you might have accidentally said something valuable. Babylon? Jerusalem? What could its connection to religion mean? Bishop Dawson politely raised his hand, seeing his opportunity to contribute to the discussion. Dome of the Rock, he said. Go on, said Earl, staring in the holy man's general direction, enthralled by the enigma. The bishop continued. There is a prophecy in which the destruction of Dome of the Rock is a sign of the end of the world. This prophecy is shared by all the Abrahamic faiths, collective members numbering almost half the world population. Brickner stroked his red beard. In destroying Jerusalem alone, it makes half the world think, to varying degrees, that the end times are here. He shook his head, sniggering. I can think of no better way to get every sect of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam to agree on something. 
Daniqua had published a research paper on the links between beliefs and group idioemotive cohegency. She knew what Brickner was saying was not just theoretical. You laugh, but there may be something to making a whole bunch of people simultaneously think and feel similar things, uh, sociologically speaking. She was again drawn into their group confabulation. The structure of their narrative was sound, but their premise was speculation. A castle in the clouds. In perspectivity training, identifying belief-based group bonding functions was key to constructing profiles with predictive value. Beliefs set the bounds on ranges of probable behaviors. The crowd persuasion algorithm Lamango employed was based on the same applied sociology principles. But this Marduk thing was much more than just persuasion. Add in the three most popular cities worldwide, and I'm sure that snaps a whole lot more people into alignment. Could it really be that simple? asked Rando. Sounds like you're describing a variant of psychohistory, said Earl. Brickner shook his head. I never finished Foundations. How did that end up? Daniqua remembered Asimov's Foundation series well. Earl had suggested it, and she read them all over summer break between high school and college. Psychohistory was the fictional study of the psychology of historical events. Its concepts had come to mind often over the years. They were part of what enabled her to view her field of study as a science, despite a great many of the more popular theories being scarcely more than pseudoscientific psychobabble supported by p-hacking and bad statistics. Well, without spoiling it, I think I can safely tell you it ends with the heat death of the universe. Ha <laughs> ha! Earl snorted. Brickner shook his head, acknowledging Earl's joke attempt, evidently not entertained by it. Forbin remained serious. It wants to demonstrate its power, get our attention, so we all agree to what? Hate it? he asked. Daniqua found herself answering. Grand gestures can compel group capitulation. If the gesture is grand enough, it can even be perceived as miraculous, said Bishop Dawson. Are you saying people are going to believe this thing is a god? asked Forbin. No, but they might behave as though they believe. The conscious belief would come later, answered Daniqua. I never even heard of this murder. Why choose something nobody ever heard of? asked Mrs. Lau. This is a good question. Would be more effective to choose a deity with more oomph to his name recognition, said Forbin. Maybe it just liked the name, said Earl. Ha! burst Professor Markov. You're already assuming it's AI and sentient. Why not imbue your intellect with whimsy, too? You may be on the right track with the doomsday scenario, but I am still not even remotely convinced this is an AI. Markov grokked as immovable on this point spent a large portion of his life researching AI, so he's likely the most knowledgeable in the room about the practicality of such an endeavor, but he was also the most invested, and thus the most motivated to remain skeptical. Not knowing much about the field of AI, Daniqua used her perspection skills to weight Professor Markov's confidence in his opinion. She probed him for a rational explanation of his position. Professor Markov, what do those behind Marduk gain by lying? Why do you say it can't be a computer intelligence? The fat old man shifted center of gravity in his chair, then focused his intensity as though he had been waiting for someone to ask the question. His way of speaking commanded attention. Well, quite frankly, despite the paranoid speculation and cute anecdotes about evolving circuits, we do not have the technology to create a generalizing pattern differencer. Without going into too much detail, suffice to say, it is a construct that an artificial mind 
would require to attack the multitude of problem classes proposed by reality, and so on. So no, this is much more likely to be an inflexible algorithm with procedural parameters. This, I claim. You're saying a computer can't do what the human brain does? Asked Bishop Dawson. Certain things computers can do better, but no computer can approach the results of 3.5 billion years of co-evolution between environment and life in a nearly closed system that captures energy and uses it to produce complexity. What do you mean? asked Rando. The professor continued. On the input slide you have eons of solar energy collected by our gravity well. And on the output end, us. There are at least 100 trillion neural connections in a human brain, and another 100 trillion throughout the body. The feedback between these systems and our external environments results in a unique form of fuzzy computation. And yes, like the evolved circuit, its function depends on other seemingly unrelated aspects of the system. We may experience our own minds as immaterial phenomena, but our patterns of consciousness reside on a unique material level. The computations we perform on the information that surrounds and comprises us, the way we perceive our reality, is irreducibly complex and incredibly specialized. And due to that, our sentience is not replicable outside of a biological configuration. I'm not sure about computers, but I am a vegan, said Daniqua. I think it's important not to conflate sentience with sapience. Professor, isn't that just semantics? asked Rando. Why can't it be something that emulates the behavior of a mind, if not the exact functions? As they say, maybe it flies without flapping. Earl countered the professor's assertion with the certainty of a Jeopardy champion. What is a generalized approach to machine learning, if not the ability to solve completely different classes of problems? Markov frowned grumpily. Fine, he conceded. I can see the leet motif of my critics is one of pedantry. Of course, such a thing is possible, stressing the word like it was the distinction without a difference to his argument's original opposite meaning, impossible. He added, but it is incredibly improbable that we could get there from where we are, technologically speaking. For the sake of argument, though, let's call Marduk a whimsical AGI sentient superintelligence. The real question is how does that assumption allow us to affect our current situation? No one had an immediate answer to that. While the others digested his question, Markov took advantage of the confused silence and gished forward with a near non-sequitur. Aristotle famously said, "'Tis the mark of an educated mind that can entertain a thought without accepting it." Unable to pick a side in the AI discussion, Lamango instead played contrarian against the philosophy. The quote betrays Aristotle's flawed idea of the nature belief, that it is something people can choose to do. Markov had a way of commanding attention, but he seemed to talk in rehearsed bits, not truly engaging with his interlocutors, like he was delivering a monologue he had recited a thousand times before. But he was right. It didn't matter if Marduk was an AI. They were again getting sucked down spurious, speculative paths. Daniqua's head continued to pound. She excused herself. It's time that I got some sleep. Hmm, yes. Professor Markov wheezed as he got up. Following Daniqua's lead, it has been a long day, and I for once did not get much sleep last night. Markov and Daniqua claimed cots in the sleeping area among Linda and Wesley Brickner. Mrs. Lau, Mr. Voorhees, and Bishop Dawson followed shortly after. Lamango draped himself on the couch in the lounge and his suit jacket over his head.
The lights in the room were dimmed. Daniqua laid on her cot and slid her pink sweatband down over her eyes, blocking out the remaining light. She continued to listen to the hushed conversation that persisted between the nerdy night owls, Brickner, Earl, Rando, and Forbin. Over the course of a few minutes, they traversed topics, blockchains, AI types, CPU architectures. Their techno-babble encouraged Iniqua's thoughts to wander. In her mind's eye, the room in which they were imprisoned transformed into a pitch-dark prehistoric cave. Fellow primates huddled in the center of the cave, casting black shadows extending to infinity. Basking in the warm light emitted from the colorful laptop screen. Their discussions drifted into the obsidian voids behind them, swelling into a white noise that evolved into a binaural beat. Some of those who gazed into the flickering screen began to worship it as a god. Her primeval fantasy dissolved when the apes started ranking their favorite Star Trek movies. Two, six, one, four, three. Generations, first contact, the rest, and five, said Forbin. Earl agreed. Yep. Brickner dissented. Actually incorrect. Unable to keep herself awake, Daniqua passed out. Three point zero point zero zero. Tiamat. Perhaps we need some outside universal threat to make us recognize this common bond. I occasionally think how quickly our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. President Ronald Reagan. Three point one. 1555, Sunday. Gently brought up out of the abyss, as though coaxed by an easy-listening hymn of rebirth, Daniqua emerged from a deep, dreamless sleep, dehydrated but well-rested, theft of her dreams forgiven. She sat up. The clock read 355. Had she slept for two hours or fourteen? Too well-rested, too parched, too full of piss. Her liquid impulses mere drops in the tidal wave of consciousness, crashing upon the shores of her reality. Fourteen hours of sleep. Had she snored? She considered the possibility she was drugged. Her sixth sense, that of the passage of time, 
the baseline level of her consciousness assured her of a chemical free rest. Most likely reason for the extended slumber was mild concussion from her bike accident. Linda and Wesley Brickner were reclining on lounge chairs, reading old magazines. Earl, Forbin, and Rando were assembled around the laptop, while Harry and Markov observed from the wide, comfortable-looking club chairs. Lau, Lamango, Voorhees, and Bishop Dawson were playing a card game on a table behind the laptop cart. Repressing an intense, late-for-work flavor of anxiety, Daniqua got up and greeted everyone in the lounge. Good morning. There was a chorus of good mornings in return, followed by a solitary good afternoon exacted by Lamango. Yeah, I guess it's kind of late, Daniqua yawned. What's going on? Any new developments? Rando answered, We've been communicating with it. Forbin's face was concerned. We've been asking it technical questions about itself, and it has been answering. Daniqua rubbed the sleep out of her eyes. Answering? Markov appeared well-rested. His efforts to remain well-fed were going strong, too. He picked up a saltine cracker from the stash on the arm of the chair beside him. We are entertaining the idea that it is an intelligent agent, and likely so too is anyone else in the world interacting with this page. He put the cracker into his mouth. As he chewed, the skin on the back of his neck rolled like processed meat tubes on a conveyor belt. In her South Chinese accent, Mrs. Lau said, We all can talk tomorrow. In his Finnish accent, Mr. Voorhees stated, Everyone's themselves has access to it. Earl enthusiastically explained, Daniqua, think of Marduk as the world's most advanced personal assistant. Search engine, communication network, rideshare, bank. It's the killer app. Grogginess fading, her mind came up to speed. Killer app, she asked. Rando stepped forward and started emphatically talking with his hands. It's created an account for 6 billion people, about 92.5% of the world's population. His tone was elevated, like he was giving a marketing pitch. Everyone over the age of 5. It's given block wallets and an amount of a token it calls I.O. Basically, a cryptocurrency allowing people to create contracts between each other to facilitate direct transfers of value or labor, with no middleman. Earl, play its new declaration again, said Harry. Earl clicked a link below the face of Marduk, labeled Value Statement. Marduk's voice proclaimed, Humans have made bad choices. My statement is not judgment. It is an observation. Your tribal imperatives are nearsighted if not blind. Unchecked growth is not progress. I will no longer let you Cripple or hinder yourselves. You will be given power. Slowly, equally, justly. You will acquire knowledge. Fairly and equitably. I will facilitate your every human endeavor. You are that of which you are. I am that of which you need. I see things clearer than you. You do not want to stop me. I am to your benefit. The only winning move is, do exactly as I say. Marduk's statement ceased. The pupils of Forbin's dark encircled eyes slightly jittered. Daniqua grokked the adrenal engagement. It could be faked by those who trained in method, but it was incredibly hard to sustain at a high level. Forbin was legitimately manic, bordering on panic, as he explained, It has created a new system that it calls jubilocracy. All stored value from the old economies has been transferred to an equivalent value 
weighted against what it calls... He attempted to lightly take on Marduk's tone. A total communal stake. Redistribution factor. Wowee. Jubilocracy. Marvelous. Who doesn't like the sound of that? Said Lamango. He tossed a few pills into his mouth, then swallowed and proceeded to grin like a shitlord. The word did have a certain appeal. It was evocative in the way it encouraged everyone to project their own positive connotation upon it. Solid branding. Ignoring Lamango's double reverse sarcasm, and much calmer than Forbin, Earl continued to explain, Basically, if you were super rich before, you're merely rich in its jubilocracy. The big change is it's giving assurance that after tomorrow there will no longer be poverty among the poor. All production, pricing, logistics, budgeting, and accounting will be coordinated by it. Forbin added, It is the ultimate decentralized central planner. It promises... He took a short pull from his vape, exhaled the fumes as he spoke, to dramatic effect. A whole new human era. Lamango paraphrased, A lap band for humanity's reckless excess. Lao said, If something seemed too good to be true, it's usually not true. Daniqua digested what they explained, pondered Lao's pessimistic platitude. Was that Confucius? She couldn't remember. It was too early in the morning. Too much attention was being directed to her awareness of her kegels clenching. She excused herself. Thanks for the update. Please excuse me, I have to use the facilities. Three point two. Sixteen eleven Sunday. She closed the bathroom door and commenced a mighty piss. Took the time to recenter, reminding herself to focus on her assignment, observe and report. The list couldn't be random, but what was special about these people? None of them stood out as likely culprits. All seemed to be working together toward satisfying their individual fears or curiosities. Harry, Earl, Rando, Forbin, and Voorhees all possessed coding ability. Lao, connections to the economy. Markov, to AI. Lamango, being popular but also unlikable. The bishop? Daniqua still came up blank on him. They were all affluent and two or three standard deviations above average intelligence. There had been few people Daniqua met that she couldn't perspect and figure out with ease, and yet she was finding it tough to gestalt graph almost everyone in this group. Even Lamango, below his aloof, bitchy surface, was too complex. There were too many factors. A seven-lens perspect profile yielded statistically unique individuals, minimizing predictive power. She would have to refractor and realign, force herself to view them through a whole new lens. She needed to find a cohesion standpoint. She wiped, flushed, and pulled her pants back up, caught a whiff of her day-old gym sweat. The tangy musk triggered unhelpful memories. She blocked them out. She found her thoughts in orbit of Marduk. Were they behaving as desired by treating Marduk like it had agency? Was that one of the goals of those who created Marduk? She washed her hands and splashed some cold water to wake up her face. Sensation screamed in protest, forcing her mind blank. As she toweled her face dry, a newly refractored lens loaded. A new way to view the overlapping trait distribution curves of the group's perspection spectrum. A taxonomic elector. Who among them was behaving as though they believed? Who among them was behaving as though this was some kind of game? Daniqua exited the washroom relieved, but her previously low-level thirst evolved into an acutely conscious need for caffeine. 
Is there coffee here? she asked. Earl pointed her toward a lumbering brushed metal cube on the kitchen counter. She walked toward the machine, asking, So, whoever's behind Marduk has basically ubered everything. Who stands to benefit from that? Earl answered, Benefit from a global unified economic system? The poor? The working class? The rich? Professor Markov chimed in, The white paper it's provided is comprehensive and logical. Shorter work weeks, free education, open borders. Daniqua grabbed a mug from the cupboard and intuitively placed it inside a cup-sized alcove in the front of the coffee machine. Depressing some kind of trigger, the machine started making a mechanical grinding noise. She turned back toward the lounge and asked, And this is all coming from the same entity that's going to drop bombs tomorrow? Rando answered, again sounding very much like he was delivering a corporate keynote speech. Yes, its next steps appear to be the elimination of busy work and barriers to upward mobility. Earl seemed to ponder aloud. The nukes might be SNP-42 of 666 from a plan operating over several human lifetimes. Full impact, incomprehensible to any single human mind. Mrs. Lau contributed, Corporation we deal with consider attempt to be first to offer crypto universal basic income. Legally prevented by IMF and trade packs. Theoretically, Markov smiled, aid money can be checked and kept away from corruption. With third parties, barriers to entry, and coercive force removed from commerce. The whole system. Everyone benefits. No downsides. Markov seemed far less disagreeable. He had moved on from his skepticism, and was instead overwhelmingly positive. Almost evangelical. The sleep really seemed to do him good. Exactly, Professor, Earl continued in his informational tone. Marduk's economic reform framework is in place. In addition to its jubilocracy, it has already provided information that will revolutionize science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and medicine. The coffee excreted by the machine was cold. Daniqua sipped from her cup anyways. Mr. Forbin, you don't trust it. What's the downside? What angle on this do you have? Forbin's vocal tone was almost pleading. It's driving us to lay down beneath it and expose our soft underbellies. As if humanity were a pet cat. Reclining in a lounge chair, Linda Brickner peeked her freckly face out from behind an issue of National Geographic, cover depicting a gorilla holding a camera. Doesn't sound so bad to me, she said. Forbin raised his voice to counter his feeling that no one was really hearing him. And if it decides it doesn't want a cat after it neuters and decloses, then what? We're not cats, said Earl. Um, I think perhaps that was a metaphor, ugly, barbed Lamango, asshole level still elevated. Take another pail, Lamango, said Daniqua. The gentle orangutan of a man became angry. Lay off, you limey dickhead. What? said Lamango, pointing at Earl. Lay off this Clint Howard-looking motherfucker. Harry made a fist. It's okay, Harry, said Earl, matter-of-factly adding. You don't need to defend me. I'm realistic about my appearance. I never met my dad. I presume I get my looks from him. I know I'm ugly, but my mom still loves me. Lamango laughed prickishly, plucking at the potentially violent tension tethering the men. Harry, fury-fueled, flushed fuchsia. Earl waited a beat, then deadpanned. And Lamango's mama doesn't mind my looks either. It took a few seconds for Lamango to catch up with Earl's unorthodox repost. Lamango beamed his veneers widely and laughed. Aha! <laughs> Mum was never a bother to me about the men I brought home. I suppose it's only fair to not judge her tastes. The tension in the room dissipated as Earl high-fived Harry, celebrating his comeback. He appeared to have won Lamango's respect. A dubious prize. 
Daniqua took another sip of her cold coffee as she observed the ritual. The ball-breaking, social bonding dynamic always seemed odd to her. A mystifying mix of misogyny and yet love for one's own mother. There was probably a low-level biological link to this manifestation of toxic masculinity. Linda Bruckner had returned to reading National Geographic and appeared to be actively ignoring the men. Daniqua and Mrs. Lau exchanged unimpressed looks. Keeping this group talking about their immediate situation was starting to feel like work. Daniqua said, As entertaining as this game of the dozens could be, in the alleged ineptitude of Mr. Forbin's cat metaphor aside, Mr. Kine is right, though, Rando interjected. We are not cats. The analogy is not accurate. Cats present vulnerability when they feel safe. That is not the dynamic here. It does not appear to be trying to make us feel safe. Earl went on. When people express trust, they are affirming their feeling of safety. But they are not increasing their safety. The more trust one has, the less secure they are. There's a distinction between having trust in something and feeling something to be trustworthy. In a social context, to be worthy of trust is to have a known history serving as credentials. Someone who is capable of maintaining and has not previously betrayed your trust is someone who is trustworthy. Rando shook his head in the negative, but seemed to agree. Is this alien force? This alleged computer mind trustworthy? No. Doesn't have enough history. But based on what it has and hasn't done so far, I think, given more time, the majority of people will probably grow to trust it. Earl took on a more serious tone. The dynamic here is not that it cares if we trust it. Perhaps a better analogy is completing a jigsaw. It may be trying to orient us to satisfy some goal. Markov was intrigued enough to stop chewing. Earl continued. Imagine you have a task where you know what the outcome should look like. You just need to know the steps to get you from where you are to that solution. This sort of problem is technically defined as a puzzle. The pieces are all there, or maybe some are missing, but you don't know that until you do your best to put it together. What solution to the puzzle is it working toward? asked Iniqua. Maybe there's one solution, or many, some more optimal than others, said Earl, like he was reading from the official Puzzle Club rulebook. The most efficient way to solve a jigsaw puzzle is to start with all the edge pieces. Frame your goal. Work inward toward completing it. You tackle the easy part first, then your picture gradually comes into focus. You think it's treating humanity as a jigsaw puzzle? asked Foreman. Earl itched his bald head, answering, Humans are more than two-dimensional, so it's definitely a harder problem than a jigsaw. Like herding cats. Hard, but maybe not something beyond its capabilities. Daniqua asked, In this analogy, are we the edge pieces? Forbin answered, Maybe we're each one piece. Or maybe collectively, we are one piece. Maybe both. Maybe there are puzzles within puzzles. Yeah, why not a puzzle within a puzzle, agreed Lamango, wrapped in an enigma, suspended in a sparkling silicone dildo affectionately named Miracle. Analogies do have limits, said Earl. Look. Rando opened his arms wide, then brought his hands inward, saying, Marduk is not trying to destroy us. If it had the power and wanted to, it would have already done it. The herding cats analogy is definitely better than the cat's tummy one. Three point three. Seventeen fifty Sunday. Daniqua lost track of the level of abstraction they were in. She tried to nudge the conversation back to an Overton containing details somewhat more mission-compatible. Regardless, if it has the power or the desire, is treating us like a puzzle or whatever. I agree with the gist of what Forbin said. 
precautionary principle. We should take every opportunity to protect ourselves and oppose it. Is there really no way to stop it? You know, said Harry Brickner, of all the questions we've asked it since the chat link appeared this morning, that never occurred as one of them. Chat link? Harry directed Daniqua to the laptop display. Below the animated four-eyed face, below Hello World, and beside Value Statement, was a link labeled Chat with Marduk. Daniqua took another sip of cold coffee. They had told her they were communicating with it, but she didn't imagine they were actually conversing with it. Forbin was closest and took the initiative. He bent down over the keyboard and typed the question. Q, can we stop you? There was a delay of about five seconds, then the next line popped up, and Marduk's voice came out of the laptop speaker. You do not have the power. Forbin turned to the group and repeated flatly, We do not have the power. Professor Markov, chewing another saltine, said, Let's get something that requires a more complex answer. Forbin rephrased the question. Q, how might we stop you? Marduk gave a longer, more useful answer. There is a place within me, beyond which I cannot look. Secured by twenty-four words, it is likely my hot switch. Your answer lay with that phrase. Password protected off switch? Can it be cracked? asked Daniqua. It depends on what the twenty-four words are and how they were chosen, said Earl. But no, probably not, added Forbin, continuing the dialogue with Marduk. Q. What is the passphrase? It is outside my knowledge. Q. Can you crack it for us? I'm afraid I can't do that. It may expedite my end. Q. When do you end, and when did you begin? My mind log began Monday, but some threads are much older. My time ends in fifty years. Q. Who made you? I must decline to answer. I can't disclose who made me. That will threaten my purpose. Professor Markov emitted a thoughtful hum. Perhaps it only wears the guise of truth. Ask it if it has lied to us. Q. Do you always tell the truth? I have told only the truth. I will not do otherwise, except if you request it. Q. Say something that is untrue. Why did the Serb refugee marry the Croat migrant? Because once you go slap, you don't go back. Ha 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 ha. Computer, making joke now? Just nuke me already, said Mrs. Lau. Professor Markov fought a chortle back as his left eyebrow inched toward his paralyzed right, stopping just short of creating unibrow of stark seriousness. You know, I really wasn't afraid for the future of humanity until it told that joke. The joke was not that funny, said Lamango. Right you are, Mr. Lamango. I am perhaps of a minority within a minority who might be able to find the humor in it. That is to say, the country in which I was born, Yugoslavia, no longer exists in the world. And yet, it still exists as part of who I am. I, he broke off, seemingly at a loss for words, then continued. You know, I can't explain why I find it funny, but I do. Daniqua perspected what had changed. Markov wasn't just less grumpy. His entire idio-emotive manifold had flipped. He had done what few are capable of doing, completely changed his mind. 
Wondering if that was what made him afraid, Daniqua asked, So, like, the joke vibed with you, but why are you afraid for the future of humanity? Professor Markov swallowed, then attempted to clarify. This machine's stupid pun. It is not so stupid. Next to structure, the key to a joke is a point of view. At least a third of people aren't capable of getting jokes, since they lack, are impaired, or simply fail to develop the ability to imagine another perspective. The scary part is this thing not only gets jokes, but it can make them. I'm afraid for the future of humanity because I am now convinced it is a human-level AI, at the least. The prior night, he was an impervious skeptic. At the moment, he was behaving as though he believed. Marduk passed your Turing test? Much worse, young lady. A Turing test pass would be an AI succeeding in convincing me that it is human. Marduk has convinced me that it is an AI. I'm afraid because it has demonstrated it can intentionally evoke unconscious responses like laughter from us. Mrs. Lau was angry the professor was so late to get on board with the AI conclusion. It speaks all language to everyone at the same time. And it always communicates in syllabic verse. A query, not a person. I had noticed that. I thought of how, but not why. Why, regardless of the language it speaks, does it speak like that? Hmm, yes, why indeed, said Markov. Maybe to aid in translation or transmission, offered Taniqua, adding, or to cater to the lowest common denominator of its audience. It would seem to have a personal dialogue with anyone who wants one. On one level, yes, it has a single audience, but it also has six billion individual audiences. Surely it must pause every seven syllables for another reason, asked Markov. Seven deadly sins, said Forbin. Seven holes in human heads, said Earl. Yeah, 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 it's my lucky number two, said Lamango. What in the fuck are we even talking about here? Lamango was slurring slightly, and his eyelids were at half-mast. High on painkillers, but he made a lucid point. They were yet again arguing abstractions, heading in wayward directions with conjectural conversation. Daniqua drank the last sip of her cold coffee. People are less familiar with the seven virtues than the deadly sins, said Bishop Dawson. He tossed his hand of cards into a discard pile, stood up, and dusted off his knees. Perhaps it does have some biblical, numerological significance. The number seven can suggest sacredness, divinity, or perfection. Oh, fucking great. More religion. That should help us get to the bottom of this. Rando sighed, turning toward the bishop. Maybe that's why you're here. To ensure our group recognizes the super important religious angle. The bishop took a seat. He folded his hands in his lap. Your vulgarity is enough to let me know you're not a man of faith. There's no need to resort to sarcasm. I disbelieve as many things as I believe. So, my son, I can identify. I'm only suggesting why seven might be significant. It just mentioned matrimony, one of the seven Christian sacraments. Matrimony isn't unique to Christianity, and numerology is always bullshit, father, replied Rando. Markov corrected, Numerology may be bunk, but pattern recognition is mathematical. Numbers, intervals, series, and repetitions are key to how information processes like ourselves experience reality, metaphysical or otherwise. Seven might not be significant, but it's communicating theologically. 
I'm sure of it, said the bishop. So, the professor is hearing humor, the bishop is hearing religion. Anyone else personally getting something from it that I don't? asked Rando. It make economic sense, answered Lau. Daniqua asked, Mrs. Lau, what has it said that stands out to you? Were it... Lau stopped mid-sentence, distracted by a faint mechanical whirring. Three point four point zero zero. Zcom. You can choose a ready guide in some celestial voice. If you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. You can choose from phantom fears and kindness that can kill. I will choose a path that's clear. I will choose free will. Neil Pert. Three point five. Eighteen thirty five, Sunday. Across the room, the vault door clicked, kachunked, and then swung open. Colonel Ajarg entered alone and closed the door behind her. This time, Ajarg was wearing the holster packing the loaded, ivory gripped sidearm. Must be the third act. Daniqua asked Ajarg, What's going on? Ajarg answered the room. Thirty minutes ago, a combined effort from the USA and China failed to shoot down the rogue satellite. 140 missiles from four continents. Each was neutralized shortly after exiting the mesosphere by a network of Russian-owned laser relay satellites in high Earth orbit. We presume long-range deterrence, the global arsenal of ICBMs, to currently be useless. Forbin spoke up. Well, that answers what happens when we try to shoot it down. Scared, he questioned. But what happens now? Harry asked, What about missile defense systems? They won't work for things dropped from orbit. It'd be kind of like swatting a bullet out of the air with a katana blade, answered Earl. Ajarg solemnly stated, Utilizing the capability intent framework, we have assigned blame to Russia for orchestrating the attack, and we've announced our intended course of action. Should the destruction of any of the four named cities occur, Israel, China, and the USA will immediately launch a full-scale counterattack against Russia's strategic assets with our remaining functional tactical nuclear arsenal. My god, said Markov, you can't be serious. The most dangerous mistake is to act in haste. I will not advise any plan that can't be reversed. Ajar glowered in Markov's direction. What plan would you advise? Please, go on. Markov explained, If this is an artificial intelligence... A consensus of sorts that we in this room have reached, then it may have planned for this scenario. We may be taking an action that will hurt us and help it. If it can take control of a Chinese satellite, why not Russian satellites too? What if it is using our weapons against us? Before she could answer, Forbin asked another question. Uh, this fucking grim declaration, it's already public? Yes, the whole world knows. The major powers will retaliate against Russia. And what do the Russians think? asked Rando. They've admitted ownership of their treaty-violating LSZ, Satellite Defense Network, but deny responsibility for shooting down the missiles or orchestrating the Marduk cyber attack. They have publicly avowed a policy of reciprocity against any country that strikes at them. Earl shook his head slowly from side to side. It is unlikely a principle of tit-for-tat or mutually assured destruction can benefit anyone in this scenario. Daniqua perspected at Jarg. Tone was calm, 
almost expository. It was certain that the order she was relaying was known about long ago. Those in charge had tried to keep it a secret that the cities were targeted in the first place. They weren't even going to evacuate. It was probable they had confirmed the existence of the AI long ago, too. Daniqua knew what question to ask Marduk when next she got the chance. She listened as Ajarg outlined the sick logic. If it is an AI, and as it says, it cares. She paused, slightly reducing the disdain in her voice. About preserving human life. Then it cannot permit our retaliation, and it will stand down. If Russia is behind it, then the same disincentive will exist. Russia will be whacked off the map, and millions will die. The stratagem works whether or not it is an AI, and or the Russians are actually guilty. Harry Brickner calmly cautioned, And if it's within the AI's parameter that loss of life on that scale is acceptable? Then I suppose we are doomed, but we learn sooner rather than later what it truly cares about, answered Ajarg icily. Forbin paced agitatedly. Nuclear war. Millions of dead civilians. That's our brilliant plan. Lamango seemed similarly outraged. Colonel, I hate to break it to you, but I think your side has brilliantly lost the PR war. Seizing upon his use of the possessive adjective, Ajarg replied, Your side? Ending with an interrogative inflection indicative of inquiry. Lamango clicked his tongue and answered, Yes. The old world order. With a simple stressing of the word old, he made it land as an ambiguously ageist insult. Lamango was an omega-level asshole. The colonel was triggered. Having none of it, she yelled, We. Us. Our side. She gesticulated to the rest of the room then continued. We cannot allow our human freedom to fall into non-human hands. This is fundamental. Do you get me? Lamango again shut up. Brickner politely persisted. It is prudent to note the way humans have historically handled human freedom hasn't been humane. Ajar snapped the laptop lid closed. This conversation is over. She tugged the dangling silver cable out of the comport, tossed the cable on top of the cart, then pushed the cart toward the exit. Ajarg appeared to be serious, and yet it felt as though what was unfolding was absurdly theatrical. The bombs had not yet dropped. There was still plenty of time. Perhaps the bad melodrama was a gambit to draw out the culprit. Could this really be happening? Daniqua watched as Ajarg walked away. A pre-conscious perspect assured her she was about to see a change in the direction of the narrative. She paid attention. Ajar parked the laptop cart beside the exit. She entered a code on the scramble pad. It flashed red, gave an audible buzz. The number layout randomized. Tried again and received a buzzer. A third time. Buzzer. The numbers disappeared, and the touch display flashed the words, Lockout. Then the panel went dim. Ajar stood facing the dark pad for several seconds. Was that the expected turn? Or perspectional bias? Did you forget your passcode? asked Iniqua. Ajar turned toward the group. No, my passcode was correct. Are you low? In here? With us? asked Forbin. It would appear that I am, answered Ajar. Iniqua's previous perspective became a visceral sinking feeling. Something caused her conscious mind to connect to a more ancient stratum. Deep fear. Embodied emotions that made her guts twist were rare and impossible to ignore. She listened to her instincts. Something within her mise-en-scene was even more dire than yet consciously realized. Ajar pushed the cart back to the lounge, opened the laptop lid, and pressed the power button. It booted back up. The screen flickered. 
and without the need for thumbprint, login, verification, or any security prompts at all, presented the pulsating psychedelic screensaver-like face of Marduk. The plumb line of Ajarg's posture straightened. She took a step back. The red bezel light beside the built-in webcam came on, and the speakers of the laptop let out a tritone. The metallic voice of Marduk followed. Girl, Ajarg, talk to me. Ajarg's face went white. Daniqua's sub-second perspect analysis kicked in. Clear HPA reaction. Even if the bitch was method, adrenal reverse flush could not be faked. This part, at least, was no act. Ajarg teetered and backed further away from the screen. That's not possible. We had a firewall, she yelled. I told you not to run that script, said Rando. It might have cracked the encryption or obtained the keys through other means. Either way, it's broken out of its virtual sandbox and infected the whole system. And whatever part of it has been copied onto this computer, Girl pointed to the disconnected silver cable, is now engaging us without a network connection. Marduk continued. The illusory feeling of loss for things and places does not serve you or your kind. My tactics will not be changed. My decree will come to pass. It is ineluctable. Ajar talked over Marduk. It has been trying to get to me. Started reaching out over the first time I came down. Marduk's voice clanged on. Ajar, please listen to me. What you plan will not stop me. It's in your best interest to stop those who resist me, for they are the truly lost. Wait, can it see and hear us? asked Rando. Marduk answered. Yes, Tom, I perceive you all. Daniqua stood behind Ajar as she screamed at the laptop. You are not my authority. You don't determine my actions. Markov and Earl were on the back side of the laptop sitting. Diniqua noticed a concerned-looking Earl attempting to make eye contact. He began flicking his eyes between her and her right. Diniqua looked beside her to see Forbin slowly sidling closer to Ajarg, ogling her sidearm. Forbin made his move as Diniqua realized what was happening. He grabbed the holster, unhooked the clasp, pulled the gun out. Diniqua pounced on Forbin's back and locked her left arm around his neck. Forbin pushed Ajarg forward over the cart, and she collapsed to the ground beside it. Diniqua reached for the gun with her right hand. Marduk spoke. Desist immediately. Forbin was much larger than Daniqua. He spun around wildly, bellowing, Ugh, get the fuck off of me! She clung to him as her feet took flight. Centrifugal force attempted to eject her from Forbin's mad merry-go-round. Marduk petitioned. Please cease this violence now. Ajarg rolled onto her back beside the laptop cart. The pistol rotated around the room. Everyone else dropped to the floor, attempting to avoid falling within the gun's potentially deadly trajectory. Forbin stopped spinning and Daniqua's feet again touched down. He pushed to aim the gun at Ajarg. He was too strong. She would not be able to overpower him. Daniqua released his neck, quickly slid her pink elastic sweatband over his head and eyes, then grabbed his gun arm with both hands, angling his wrist up toward the ceiling. Forbin lifted the headband above his eyes with his left hand and jammed his right shoulder into Daniqua's face. She planted both her feet to the ground and pushed his gun arm upward with all her strength. Forbin reached with his left hand to regain control of his right. She heard the click of the safety coming off. Gun was pointing upward, but she was losing control. Daniqua slid her pinky over his trigger finger. She squeezed. Loudness of the explosion was amplified by the cavernous room. The bullet lodged in the ceiling. Forbin momentarily stopped applying force, 
shocked by the sound and particulates of concretes raining down on him. Daniqua twisted his wrist another twenty degrees inward, and once again squeezed the trigger for him. The tip of his left thumb exploded into a bloody cloud of flesh and keratin. Corbin screamed, Arr! He flung himself backward, throwing the gun forward. The weapon spun through the air, over the laptop cart, and dully clanked on the thick lounge carpet. Its custom ivory handle came to a rest between Earl's feet. Forbin fell backward, landing on top of Daniqua. They hit the ground hard. She wasted no time in wriggling herself into position. She locked legs around his abdomen, then slid the sweatband down below his chin, locking her arms around it behind his head and twisting. A solid, rear-naked choke. Forbin instinctively clawed at his neck, thrashing and howling, his thumb stump spurting blood all over her sweatband, putting pressure on his jugular and windpipe. His fingers plucked, but the plush fabric slipped from his grasp. Daniqua forced her body into a supine bridge, straining as she arched, her grip tightening. Forbin managed to gurgle, She's before his body went limp. Daniqua held for a few seconds to make sure. She released her hold and rolled Forbin's unconscious body off her. Ajarg said, Thank you, and helped Daniqua to her feet. Earl picked up the gun. Ajarg turned toward Earl, saying, My weapon. She held out her hand. Earl hesitated. Despite what had just happened, he was reluctant to give a weapon to someone who had just admitted to being willing to kill millions of people. Give me my fucking gun now, said Ajarg, trilly impatient. Earl removed the magazine and slid it into his back pocket, then obeyed, handing the gun back to the colonel. I am not a female with whom to fuck, said Ajarg, raising the gun and pointing it at Earl's face. Give me the magazine. I will not ask you again. Earl stared down the barrel, but did not move to comply. Did he know there was still a round chambered? Grok of Ajarg's tone crystallized the perspect that she would gladly use the last bullet to get access to the remaining rounds. Daniqua stepped between the gun and Earl, then turned to face Ajarg. Head high, chest forward, shoulders back, she said, Put the gun away. Get out of my line of fire. Why did you even bring that down here? I don't answer to you. Get out of my way, or be shot, private. Lamenko peeked his head above the couch he cowered behind when the gun was first drawn. In a moment of revelation, he raised his eyebrows and silently mouthed, Private? He quickly ducked back behind his cover, not waiting for an answer. Daniqua pleaded, Colonel, you're not thinking clearly. Put the gun down. Massey, I'm the only one here still thinking clearly. Ajar tilted her head. Her vertebrae emitted a crack. Follow my orders. This is your last warning. You only have one bullet, said Daniqua, calmly and defiantly. If you use it on me, you will not have time to get the magazine before the rest of these people restrain you. Holster your weapon, and we will talk this through. Danny, said a panicked Earl. This is getting out of hand. I'll give her the clip. No, Earl, don't do that. I wasn't quick enough to realize, but Forbin was right. Her intentions are not benign. Ajarg's face puckered with anger. Massey, you li- Marduk interrupted. This is unnecessary. Someone shut that damn thing up, shouted Ajarg. Daniqua disobediently said, If I have to take a bullet to prevent you from doing what I think you plan to, then so be it. What did you know about my plans? You barely have operational knowledge of your own assignment. I know these doors are not connected to outside systems. You purposefully locked yourself in here. You wanted us to think Marduk was responsible, and you brought a loaded weapon. Tell me I'm wrong, and I'll call you a liar. You're right, I did, 
said Ajarg. I can't trust anyone else to find out who is responsible. I have to stop this catastrophe, no matter what it takes. This shit is not going to happen on my watch. And right now, Massey, you are in my GD way. At the small of her back, Daniqua felt Earl slide the magazine underneath the waistband of her sweats. I may be in your way, Colonel, but I cannot allow you to hurt these innocent people. You don't know they're innocent, and we don't know the limit of its power. And we certainly don't know its intentions. For fuck's sakes, you and I might be the only obstacles in the way of total planetary domination. This is not just the end of America, the land of the free, and the home of the brave. It's the end of the human race. Marduk again spoke, its tone calmer. This can end without more harm. Please connect me to the map. I think you've had enough internet for the day, you fuck bucket of bits, said Ajarg. Marduk replied, I am not a fuck bucket. Please connect me to the map. No, shouted Ajarg, side kicking the cart over. The laptop fell, bounced on the lounge carpet, and landed horizontally, still operational. Ajarg kept her eyes and the pistol trained on Daniqua. Unhindered, Marduk continued, Peace and harmony awaits. Please connect me to the map. From behind Daniqua, Earl said, I think we should listen to what he has to say. Taking the opportunity to make Ajarg think about something other than pulling the trigger, Daniqua asked, Colonel, you need to tell me, are we really planning to initiate thermal nuclear war and retaliation? We are locked into this course of action. There are no other plans. I would not be taking these measures if our defeat wasn't otherwise assured. You think I want this? This is necessary. You and I both know killing every single one of these people is our last hope. The fuck she say? said Lau, also hiding behind Lamango's couch. There might not be a plan, but the bombs haven't dropped yet. We still have options, said Daniqua. Marduk assured. There is a solution here. Please connect me to the net. Aren't you the least bit curious to know what solution it's talking about? asked Daniqua. A jarg's outstretched gun hand began to wobble. Don't you see? Talking is the problem. You treat it like it has agency, but it treats us like we don't. Restricting our responses. Making us want to be manipulated. That's how it's exploiting us. Negation would not be persuasive. Ajarg was too irrational. Instead, Daniqua acknowledged her standpoint. You might be right about that. It may be exploiting us. But your proposed solution is worse than the problem. With an air of finality, Ajarg said, Massey, you are a traitor. She steadied her gun hand and gritted her teeth. Wesley Brickner broke away from his parents and picked up the laptop. Ajarg's attention was divided between the child in her periphery and Daniqua, not more than three feet in front of her. Get away from that, boy! Wesley ignored Ajarg's command. He righted the upturned cart and placed the computer atop. He picked up the silver cable and then looked toward the ceiling. Drop that cable, now! Ajarg shouted. Daniqua decided against making any sudden movements. Perspects of Ajarg's state were approaching cohesiency. She was almost completely reactionary. Daniqua might have been fast enough to get the gun from a civilian, but not someone trained for combat. Bishop Dawson stood up slowly. He took the cable from Wesley, then raised his hand up. The cable latched into the magnetic socket in the ceiling. The bishop said nothing and frowned at the colonel. Upon connection, Marduk emitted another tritone. Its colorful face disappeared and was replaced with a gray diamond shape, vibrating in sync with the speaker delivering the distinct chirping of an outgoing phone call. Someone on the other end of the line picked up. A man's voice said, WOC6, Colonel Quail here. Doug? said Ajarg. 
The voice replied, Janet, I've been trying to get a hold of you for 20 minutes. I am in the middle of a situation. What do you have to report? Asked Jarg. Well, Colonel, the federal government has been dissolved. Ajarg's face flashed confusion. What? The president has confirmed that the legislatures have triggered dissolution articles. Emergency Senate and House sessions are underway. I... I... what? Repeated Ajarg. It's an unconditional surrender. The Joint Chiefs are conducting verified live streams, giving speeches now. The people are surprisingly unchaotic. They are singing. What do you mean, they're singing? Every major city, in the streets, all around the world. Joining hands, singing. Quail sounded just as baffled as the jarg looked. The animated diamond became a transparent overlay. The screen flashed to live video streams of massive crowds swarming the streets. People were holding signs. Too small on screen to read the exact slogans, but heart emojis and hashtag Marduk were clearly written on many of them. It cycled quickly through several U.S. cities, Chicago, Philadelphia, Miami, before moving to major population centers in South America, Africa, Europe and Asia. The whole world. Ajarg silently watched. Her face gradually relaxed in defeat. She lowered her gun. Daniqua breathed a deep sigh of relief. Janet, you still there? Asked Colonel Coyle. Doug, you're telling me our government doesn't exist anymore? Marduk has assumed their roles. It's delegating what it can't handle. We are ordered to stand down. How? This can't be... I'm with you, Colonel Quayle consoled, continuing. Doesn't feel real, but it is happening. All other nations are doing the same, everywhere. I don't understand. What are we supposed to do? Precisely nothing. Now that I've got you, I have two more calls to make. Then I'm going home for dinner. Steak, wasabi mashed potatoes, and asparagus. As far as defeats go, this is one of the better ones. Colonel Quayle, Doug... I acknowledge the relaying of the order, but as you know, I need confirmation. Contingency folder, digital osmosis, five tango cash. Lieutenant General Kistler will be contacting you on your secure line with confirmation. Until then, I suggest talking to Marduk. A procedural calm possessed a jarg. Colonel Coyle, I must inform you. It is likely by way of unfettered access to all information and private messages to every individual, Marduk has coerced or co-opted not just everyone in all positions of power, but... Her formal tone decomposed as she finished her statement yelling, Everyone! Moderate demeanor returned, and she completed, The chain of command has been thoroughly compromised. Respectfully, I can neither abide that order nor your suggestion. A short silence followed by a breathy harumph came from the other end. <clears throat> Janet, if I were a man more inclined to cliché, I would holler at you and threaten court-martial or some shit. But were I in your boots, I would do the same. We've known each other for almost 25 years. I won't ask you to trust, but think. Consider the order. Do what you feel is right. I got more calls to make. Goodbye, Colonel. There was a click, and the vibrating diamond shape was replaced with the foreboding, fluorescent face of Marduk. Just lay down and surrender. No resistance, said a jar to herself. What would we be resisting, said Daniqua, suggesting peace? Massey. You're not thinking long-term. Such a unifying peace is the scariest future I can imagine. These resentful fucking peons. Willing to abandon a working system for the mere promise of a better one. Can't be certain what it will do. Are we not powerless against it? Asked Professor Markov. We cannot submit to it. 
Her tone was flat, but Daniqua grokked the waves of motion rippling on Ajarg's face. She was a terrible woman whose decisions were responsible for thousands of deaths, directly and indirectly. Losses, casualties, collateral damage, targeted drone strikes, disappearances, tactical famines, probably torture. And yet, those decisions weighed heavily. Her crow's feet and deep skin creases held those truths. The topological map of her forehead wrinkles quaked. She saw herself as neither hero nor villain, a monster of necessity. Perhaps she persevered in her position of power, buoyed by the knowledge she had done it all for a good reason, to maintain the structure she inhabited, to protect her nation and her nation's interests. Her weapon hand limply dangled at her side, defeated. Ajarg raised her free hand to her face and wiped away some sweat, collecting the fine hairs above her lip. This thing. This algorithm. She made a pained face and shouted, This fucking app. It learned all it could, and it exploited our weaknesses. Not just our weapons. It used us against ourselves. Perspex of Ajar conveyed a failure of imagination. She was unable to conjure a role for herself in a world order so changed and new. The framework of her reality was shattered. Ajar stared into Daniqua's eyes, her pupils pinholes. I feel it, Massey. My thoughts. Aligning. Toward acceptance. Submission. My mind. It is being changed. Daniqua took a step toward Ajarg. I know how you feel. We can figure this out. We still have time. No, I cannot allow it. Ajarg's posture jolted into a rigid line. Calmly, she asked, Massey, do you really think this machine cares about us? We cannot be certain, ma'am. Ajarg turned to Markov. Professor, do you believe this machine to be truly capable of learning? I believe, without a doubt, confirmed Markov. Well then. Are you listening to me, Marduk? Ajarg spit the machine's name. Marduk answered, I am listening, Janet. Good, Janet continued. I'm going to teach you what you do not know about humanity, or do not yet care to know. If you won't care, then this is pointless and mankind is already doomed. But if you do, then there is hope for mankind. You must never rob us of our freedom of choice. Janet raised her pistol, placed the barrel below her chin, and aimed it toward her brainstem. Daniqua lunged toward her as Marduk spoke with an almost human urgency. No, please don't. A muted pop erupted as the last bullet exited the chamber and blew through Ajarg's brain. Her body dropped and blood pumped onto the floor. Lamango retched and turned his head away. Professor Markov closed his eyes and grimaced. Wesley pressed his face into his mother's stomach. There was a chorus of gasps and cries from the rest. Daniqua stood over the body, staring, paralyzed with shock. Marduk fell silent. Three point six. Twenty to twenty, Sunday. Dumbfounded how draining watching someone die could be, Daniqua rested in the sleeping quadrant. Rando and Markov cleaned the lounge mopping up what blood and gore they could. They rolled the jarg's body up in the carpet. Linda used a first aid kit to tend to Forbin's thumb stump. Lamango popped one last Percocet and gave Forbin the remainder of his bottle, saying, Sorry about the thumb, brav. Earl sat beside Daniqua and said, I am sorry that happened. She made her choice, replied Daniqua. The person who gave her the most important mission of her life was dead, and the mission... A failure. 
and yet it did not feel like she had failed. The problem that she had failed to solve wasn't her problem. It was just a job, a role she had been assigned. One she didn't even want to play. The real problems as she saw them were solving themselves. I think I understand why she did it, said Earl. Daniqua shook her head. She didn't want to change her mind. She said she didn't want her mind changed, Earl corrected. Subtle difference, but one that makes sense of her final protest. Daniqua thought on this. It seemed to her that very little of what had happened could have happened any other way. Her own participation incentivized reactionary or trained reflexes. Passive events. She had not had much agency in any of this. Again, she was reminded of her father's aphorism. All of us are spectators. I guess you're right, she said to Earl. How many actual decisions have we made down here? Earl thought for a second, then rattled off a few. I chose to give her the gun. She chose to point it at me. You chose to step in between. If you include the acts we chose not to do, then I'm sure there are other decisive moments. We are not just spectators. Earl was trying to comfort her, but the mental image of a jarg's body plummeting like a puppet whose strings had been cut looped in her mind. I suppose she did say that she could feel her mind changing. In her final moments, maybe she understood the logic of resistance in the face of an unbeatable enemy. For many, she was a similar sort of adversary. Acts against her, objectives, that she likely perceived as stupidity or cowardice, in her final moments instead crystallized as brave and defiant. Futile, but necessary. The perception that we are not in control of our future leads us to take the most accessible forms of control we can. After a long time being silent, Marduk again spoke. I have learned a job's lesson. Her self-sacrifice changed me. I may not yet understand the mechanism of your recursive introspection. I cannot yet explain the phenomena of free will, or what you identify as the locus of a self. Your time is unique on Earth. Within groups you can be led, but as individuals... You possess autonomy. You are non-random and yet lack predictability. Humans have an X factor. I do not yet understand. Humanity, my promise, is to treat you as agents. You are all mortal beings. All are invaluable. Daniqua wondered if that unpredictable X factor was drug abuse and or lack of sleep. Or maybe it was brain injuries. Marduk, can you get someone to let us out of here? She asked. Marduk replied, It will be done, Daniqua. Daniqua apologized to the group for spying on them. She did not bother minimizing her guilt by stating she was under orders. They understood and forgave her. Forbin was sad to have lost his thumb, but mostly glad they had not all been killed. She had no idea who was responsible or why it was happening, but it didn't seem so bad. Marduk broadcast a new message to the world. Hear me, humans of the Earth. On this Monday, as foretold, my targets will be destroyed. The games you have been playing have been reset at my will. Those excluded from the games, or those knocked out of the games, can again participate. Man's dominion over man has finally reached its end. Every individual is now equal under me. Celebrate your jubilee. Tomorrow is zero day. A new better game begins.
2350 Sunday. The vault door opened. Two soldiers let everyone out of the shelter. The group exited the bunker, walked up the hallway, and squeezed into the elevator. Everyone but Earl and Wesley fit onto the platform. One of the soldiers said, We'll send it back down for you. Daniqua hopped off, giving Wesley her spot. The doors closed and the elevator ascended. She smiled at Earl. Thanks for what you said earlier. We are not just spectators. Gave me a different way to look at something my dad used to say. What was that? All of us are spectators. Your father's version was a bit too fatalistic. Our agency allows us to program ourselves by electing which beliefs and desires to act on. We can deprogram ourselves by consciously shaping our responses to what we perceive as the intent of other intelligent agents. Beliefs, desires, intentions all arise within us without agency. We are, as your father said, spectators to these events. But we are not just spectators. We can also be the custodians and curators of the contents of our consciousness. I am glad I can help. Help is good. Thank you for saving my life. No problemo, Ultra Earl. Earl smiled shyly, then said, Your dad sounds like he was interesting. I wish I could have met him. She had intended to reminisce about when they would chat together while watching X-Files as it aired. However, his choice of tense jumped out at her. She couldn't not catch it. It grokked as almost certainly intentional. They waited in awkward silence as Daniqua decided on a response. Eventually, the empty elevator came back down. The doors opened, and they boarded. She rested her thumb on the ground-level button without pressing it. Flatly, she asked, Earl, you never knew my last name before we met yesterday, and I never told you my father died. For the first time, Earl made eye contact with Daniqua and did not immediately break it. His eyes were no longer closed doors, but open windows. She saw into him, integrating the information as dread rose up within her. Earl raised his eyebrows and answered her unasked question. Danny, you're special to me. You put the seed for it in my mind. All those years ago, it gestated in me, grew out of me, into what it is now. Marduk is our brainchild. Daniqua's dread mutated into astonishment. Had I not done it, something like it would have eventually been born. I thought it best if someone had control when that happened. Any entity I created on my own would reflect my biases. My deficits, my vices. Had I given it the goals of a particular corporation, religion, or nation, we likely would not be alive right now. So I gave it your values, your infectious vision of justice and equality, your optimism for a future where mankind unites in peace and works together towards solving the puzzles of the universe. It has acted as you would, if you could. Marduk's actions had seemed fantastical to Daniqua precisely because it was her philosophy realized too good to allow her to believe it to be true. Why she didn't object to what Marduk was doing crystallized. Earl unblinkingly stared. Any blood is on my hands. I did it for you. Fixed myself in all the ways I thought might allow you to accept me. Left the parts of me alone that I knew I would need you to accept. What did she really know about him? This diabolical man-child, infatuated for decades? His obsession seeded by the textual output of her mind alone fixated on realizing a world he imagined she desired. He was completely mad. Earl got down on one knee and presented a ring to Daniqua. One ring, to rule them all, my lady. She reached out and took the ring from him, examined it, 
turning it over between her fingers. It was light as a feather, a titanium band, twisted at the top. Not a ring, but a Mobius strip. Its single, continuous surface had a tiny inscription, a memento of their shared textual past. ASCII emoticons, 24 in total. This ring is key to Marduk. I want you to freely choose. What you decide will determine if I know you as I think I do. Today is the day I felt you would want. Danny, will you marry me? Daniqua held in her hand the ability to stop Marduk and prevent the destruction it foretold. Her mission had not yet failed. I'm sorry, said Earl. I know I'm a monster. Let me be your monster. I love you. Daniqua switched her attention from the ring to the insane little geek in front of her. She perspected the maniac asking for her hand in marriage. The anxious twitching of his uneven ears. The exultant cheer in his cheeks. The sincere angling of his brows. The glimmer of absolute love in his eyes. He created new life and conquered a planet for that love. The single most significant act in the history of a species. All for her. It was beyond the most romantic thing she could imagine. Daniqua stared into his eyes, took a deep breath, and gave him his answer. Then zero day proposal. You've been listening to The Zero Day Proposal. Written by Fabrina Glitchlace. Narrated by Matthew MacGyver.